You're listening to The Yoga Room with Mark Stevens, a place for exploring evocative and provocative ideas and conversations about yoga, life, myth, science, and making the world a better place for all. Before we get into the episode, I want to tell you about my upcoming online pranayama course that begins on May 5th, 2022. I designed this course for students, teachers, and wellness professionals alike. It provides a comprehensive exploration of pranayama, starting with the earliest mentions of prana and its related concepts in ancient yogic texts, the development of pranayama as a defined practice with specific techniques in medieval to modern yoga and tantra, explanation of the respiratory system as understood in contemporary physiology and why that matters in practicing and teaching pranayama, and also a variety of very subtle and elaborate preparatory practices, as well as guidance in practicing several different pranayama techniques, plus reflections on how best to guide others in exploring pranayama, which the course itself models. This course qualifies for 17 hours of continuing education credit. It combines self-paced video learning with live interaction, group discussions, and guided practices via Zoom. The course comes with six months of access, giving you flexibility to study when it works best for your unique schedule, and it's delivered in a super user-friendly online learning portal that allows you to pause, rewind, rewatch, and even slow the speed of video lectures and classes, allowing, helping you to ensure that you don't miss any critical information. Again, this online course begins on May 5th, 2022, and you can learn more about it on my website or by clicking on the Pranayama course link in the show notes. If you're a yoga teacher or wellness professional who's thinking about building a website, teaching online classes, creating a course, or starting a membership community, I have an invaluable resource to share with you. Offering Tree is an affordable, all-in-one platform that makes it easy to streamline your offerings, scale your business, and communicate with your community. You can use it to build a website, take payments, manage your schedule, send emails, and you can go much, much further with it. With Offering Tree, you can host in-person and online events, classes, and appointments. You can take online registrations and payments, send automatic confirmation and reminder emails, offer discounts, tiered and donation-based pricing, create engaging digital content, video libraries, courses, challenges, and coaching programs for your students or clients anywhere at any time, all from one system that has excellent customer service when you need it. Offering Tree provides all the administrative management resources that you need for your wellness business so you can spend more time with your clients, doing what you love and find inspiring, and less time fiddling with technology. To learn more about Offering Tree and to take advantage of a special discounted price, visit OfferingTree.com slash yoga room or click the link in the show notes and you'll get 50% off your first three months or 15% off an annual plan. Again, visit OfferingTree.com slash yoga room to grow your business and to support this show. OfferingTree.com slash yoga room. Welcome to the Yoga Room Podcast. I'm Mark Stevens, your host. The intention of this podcast is to share diverse ideas about yoga practices and yoga in daily life, along with related practices that are all about making life better for all. So, well, 
Many of my guests are well-known and notable influencers. Most are new and largely hidden voices from all around the world whose stories, whose ideas, hands-on projects, whose writings and other expressions are both fascinating and I think extremely important in our present and our future. Now, while many of our episodes focus directly on practices, today we're going to step back in order to go more clearly forward. So this episode, our debut podcast, is it's on knowing. It's on truth and not causing harming, primarily with respect to yoga, even as I think these matters apply to far more in our lives, perhaps never more than in the current age. So I want to set the table, or at least lay out a tablecloth, better preparing this place where I invite you to come and break bread, to to listen into conversations related to more conscious and healthy living, to sharing and learning with one another in the healthiest, most honorable, and often provocative ways. Now, in discussing truth and knowledge, we might in yoga parlance say satya and jnana, um, some will say topics of epistemology and ontology, whatever the language, it's about how what we know informs what we do and how we might do it. And so in this, I will try to highlight how we might best ensure integrity in teaching, in learning, in sharing, in interacting with others. Throughout all this, I will frequently punctuate all the abstract stuff with practical points, bringing it back to earth, which I'll say I'm confident is real. Basically spherical, spinning, wobbling, revolving around the sun in one of, what is it, 100 billion solar systems in the Milky Way galaxy way out on its Orion Cygnus arm. So in contrast to what many others say, I don't think we need to look to the ancient texts or to such transmitted sources of wisdom in yoga or other realms, for that matter, to really appreciate the value of truth, of of learning, even as we can learn much from them. And we don't need to look there to find better ways to bring truth, knowledge, and better qualities into our lives, even again, as there's much wisdom there. As many have said, yoga, 99% practice, 1% theory. And in a practice that at its heart is about learning, including Zvadhyaya, self-study for self-transformation, just about anyone who has done yoga can attest to having learned things in doing it, sometimes coming to life-changing insights, to making changes in their lives, usually or mostly for the better, even as we must note that some people have been hurt doing yoga in a variety of ways, whether physically, emotionally, or in other ways. Indeed, not hurting, ahimsa, is at the heart of our topic, for which direct experience might be precisely where we learn most clearly and memorably. So the idea, the principle of truth, of of satya, is deep in the heart of yoga practice. It is there in the many tributaries of yoga from ancient to modern times, many that predate Patanjali's ancient yoga sutra by centuries. Patanjali's yoga sutra now the primary reference for the underlying theory and philosophy of yoga worldwide, which not at all incidentally is a curious irony in at least two ways. One that it's primarily about meditation, Well, meditation is today a very small part of most yoga classes, if it's offered at all. And then secondly, because the Yoga Sutra was never considered the primary reference on yoga or the source on yoga in yoga until it was made so. In the 20th century, even as it was much discussed, kind of got a big ride in a part of the 11th century. 
And, and by the way, for more on that, I highly recommend reading David Gordon White's wonderful book, The Yoga Sutra of Patanjali, a biography. And in relation to some things I say later in this episode regarding picking cherries, uh, you might go right to chapter 13. I think it's the strange case of Chirimalai Krishnamacharya or TK Krishnamacharya, I don't remember. So notwithstanding any of that, my sense, my experience is that the Yoga Sutra contains many ideas and principles that can be and very much are applied to a variety of practices, including most of those we find today in yoga, which came into existence many centuries after Patanjali, most of which are very different from what he discussed, even as we can find and weave in beautiful threads of wisdom and insight from those sutras, which, just to be clear, the word sutra translates as thread. So again, we we weave the tablecloth. Back to the matter of truth, to satya. Truth is, is I think, kind of a tricky idea these days, a somewhat elusive or slippery one, especially when we have the notion of alternative facts. So what's an apple to some could well be an orange to someone else, and we probably can easily imagine someone explaining why what you believe is an apple is not really an apple. And that might sound crazy, but it's a taste of our reality today, even in yoga, and clearly in other areas of life, such as politics and pandemics and the ecological conditions of our planet, uh, and that, and these things, they can matter for life, for everyone and everywhere. So, truth. We, we have today in yoga uh, some voices that question whether the earth is a sphere or flat, whether our tissues are best understood using principles of the five humors, some give us four humors, or the insights of human anatomy and physiology, scientific medicine. Uh, voices that question the very nature of who you are, of who we are, were for some the sort of the normal idea of the self that is me you with this or that identity itself is seen as a hugely consequential illusion when it's not understood fundamentally that is as an expression of brahman the supreme god force which some people insist defines yoga as it does in much of the ancient to modern yoga literature and teachings and if you don't agree with that if you don't agree with this conception of what it means you're seen as being confused deluded well while, while others have a decidedly different idea or sense, understanding this life, this corporeal and conscious life, is altogether real. So it makes it entirely problematic, it would seem, to echo what Polonius says in Hamlet, to thine own self be true. Okay, diving more deeply in. Another idea in the heart of yoga is called jnana, and that's that's J-N-A-N-A, those of you taking notes, um, which means knowing or knowledge. Those of you who've read in the Upanishads or the Bhagavad Gita or the Yoga Sutra have surely encountered this idea, which isn't about knowing how to make soup, slice apples, love others, but it relates to what I said a moment ago about the self. That is, knowing usually means in yoga literature and teachings, realizing that most of what you think is true and really important isn't. In fact, that's that's not knowing. And all of that, what what you think you know, all of this, what you take to be real and important, starting with your sense of individual being, your ego self, this existence in what you think of as yourself in this body with these thoughts and these feelings, really isn't real. Rather, it's, it's maya, 
with the same spelling of the, like, the people of Central America, M-A-Y-A. But here, in the Sanskrit term, means illusion, which has a close cousin, avidya, ignorance. The entire point in this perspective of yoga is to come to that realization. This is what is meant by self-realization, to get that what is really real is beyond all of this, is permanent, is all about being at one with or in Brahman, God. And whether it's with or in, well, that will depend in turn on the particular spiritual or philosophical current you're flowing with, including what we might refer to as the frames of dualism, non-dualism, qualified non-dualism, which most definitely are not the only frames for practicing, for knowing, or being just the ones that are most highlighted in yoga philosophies. Let's say we're interested in having greater clarity about things in our lives and living a better life, perhaps with yoga as part of this or some other practices or therapeutic practices, whatever it happens to be. I'll suggest, again, that there is a lot of wisdom in that idea of 99% practice, 1% theory. But which practice or practices? Just one? Which theory or theories? Is it the same, especially the practices for everyone, for each of the nearly 8 billion of us on this planet today? Now, to be clear, some will say yes. Because, well, please do consider, though, that not everyone has the same conditions or intentions, such as the contrast between maybe you, your cousin with PTSD, your grandfather with perpetual adolescent syndrome, your pregnant partner, someone with arthritis, osteoporosis, chronic depression, chronic anxiety, or that dude in line with you at the health clinic who thought that yoga is some kind of a thick cultured milk product, same practice, or the same principles applied to different practices. Let's be clear here that there are lots of different answers given to those basic questions that are swirling around in the yogaverse today. Again, In this podcast, we will most definitely get deeply into different kinds of practices and how one might best navigate the vast fields of possibilities from philosophies to techniques in yoga today, from cushions and mats to flow or be still, purely contemplative practices to yoga aerobics. But for now, I'll stay focused on these matters of facts, of knowing, of truth, and teaching and learning and sharing about yoga and other practices with integrity. And as we dive further in, please keep recalling that idea of 99% practice and that right now, this is part of that 1% uh, the theory. So we all learn things in a variety of ways. I don't mean only with respect to, say, theories of multiple intelligence and different learning styles and all, which are important to consider, but rather I want to suggest that we learn a variety of ways in terms of, well, self-reflection, imagination, intuition, direct experience, what we might think of as sort of the internal sources, and we also learn a lot from other sources, whether it's listening to teachers in classes, Podcasts on the internet, the evening news, reading books, watching YouTube videos, something else in the vast, vast buffet of today's global information sources, or as underlined earlier, again, from direct experience. So let's 
say for a moment, that you do read as part of you know one of the ways that you learn, or you listen to and learn from others who've read and listen to yet others as part of their learning. If you've taken yoga classes, you can be fairly confident that your teachers have read books about yoga and learned things about yoga from others in whatever ways. And the usual assumption is that they've, they have accurate information, that they've, they've done their homework, and that they're doing their best they can to convey whatever knowledge they have and the most important and useful knowledge that they have gleaned. Now, oh, what are their sources? Let's be clear that some will assert that their source is divine, that they are simply channeling the divine or divined knowledge to you if you are so chosen or blessed, and that such transmission is the only way to true knowledge. Maybe so. And we will return to that idea extensively, especially in other episodes, with guests very much expressing that view, that feeling, that sensibility. In most fields of study, such as math, psychology, nursing, architecture, the culinary arts, there's there's a body of knowledge that's been developed over time with considerable effort to get at it, to to get, well, at truth, at satya or a way of getting at things in a way that's based on what's really real. So it's an egg, not a grape. And when blended, it takes on a new form. When heated, yet another form. And the different ways of blending and heating will have different effects on its transformation. We've learned how to cook eggs, how to make bread, how to build bridges, how to heal sprained ankles, how to work with breech babies, how to work with people with PTSD in better and better ways. So we can see, we can acknowledge, hope that knowledge, true knowledge, it matters. After all, we want the bridge that an architect designs to withstand a certain amount of measured weight, and just that depends on a lot of knowledge, hopefully accurate and true knowledge about materials and forces, which we've learned about using tools such as math, physics, chemistry, and other aspects of structural engineering. So I would certainly want my orthopedic doctor to know the difference between a tendon and a ligament, perhaps the histography of those different types of tissues, um, but before they operate on my knee. And a lot more than that. Um, And not just what they gathered from their imagination or a shaman. Even as our imagination, a shaman, might indeed give us some of the most absolutely precious, precious gems of insight in our lives. The the gradual accumulation of such knowledge uh, and and of more general or far more specialized knowledge is for the most part, it's done openly in places like schools and universities and research institutes, at conferences, in peer-reviewed journals. And it's a way in which we sort of all get to, to listen in, to, to consider things, to comment on things. And, and we get to weed out the nonsense, the misleading or deceptive stories and ideas and let the flowers of truth grow as beautifully as can be. And there are usually standards for such things. So I'm frankly glad that the electrician who wired my house or my toaster knows certain standards, is held to those standards, um, of electrical wiring, so that I can sleep at night without fearing my house burning down and do appreciate that electrical shorts have been a leading cause of houses catching on fire since the electrification of homes. 
please remember standards, especially if you care about yoga teachers and others sharing in significant ways in your life, guiding you perhaps, telling you what to do perhaps. And the way their most defined standards are defined and supported, which today with respect to yoga comes mostly through private entities such as the national and increasingly international yoga alliance a private entity based in arlington virginia also through mass circulation yoga magazines and websites that are mostly driven by making profits and that print whatever they wish excuse me even as they have staff writers editors who are bright devoted hardworking, committed to bringing forth the best information. And we also have, of course, a variety, a diverse array of yoga-style businesses and have strong internet and other presences, including those or that one you might be thinking of as the ultimate source of truth of standards, if only because they're aligned with you or they present information that they put forth as being as natural as the sun and the earth, even as they might very well have a biased or highly selective interpretation of the vastness of what we know about yoga. Excuse me. So along with these modern sources of yoga information, we also find lots of books and things like this podcast that reach into the past, that reach out broadly for greater perspective and insight. And so whether it's books or articles or other sources, we also we find titles and contents with bold assertions about just about everything presented in the most compelling, cogent, and clear ways that are presented as accurate information or they sound like or imply or feel like what we might think of as distilled knowledge, refined and true knowledge from credible sources. But is it knowledge in the sense of bringing forth the best, the truths of what we know? Is it truthful? Is it distilled knowledge? Are the sources credible? How complete is it, especially when the claims or the assertions or ideas are, are, are quite grand? Like, what's left out? Now, to be clear, I've written several books about yoga and before I end this this episode, this podcast, uh, I'll comment on them later on, to, including with some frank self-criticism about my own work. So just think for a moment of titles and subtitles that include the terms yoga and science, adding a promise of something like the best thing since whatever it is and how this will change your life and how this style is the real deal. There are lots of them, often with famous authors, often with an even more famous celebrity's name emblazoned on the cover as a confirming endorsement. Now, thousands, maybe millions of people might have read that book, absorbed it as the divine truth, or at least as accurate knowledge, and then they repeat it, and they teach it as the truth. Someone else then hears it, and they teach it, they share it, and they repeat it as the truth. I'm going to take a brief foray here into into standards of writing and publication, of influencing, with the threads of truth and knowing right with it. So let's just say that in elementary school, students learn how to spell and how to write clear sentences and paragraphs, even how to write stories with a beginning, a middle, an end. And they also learn not just to copy what someone else wrote. In high school, students learn how to write short papers, do some research, how to find some information on a topic, and their paper might well use resources that are, you know, sources of information that focus just on a certain idea. Wonderful. College. There's 
somewhat greater expectations. Of course, you're now you're expected to write, well, probably more elaborate papers, but you might not ever be taught how. S- still, there's an expectation that you're not just going to copy things or sources um, from the internet or something that's, that you learn that's plagiarism. There's also some expectation, a normative value, that students at this point will now provide a list of their sources, their references, so others can check them, learn from them, check them out, inspect them. And if they are using someone else's word, they'll put them inside of quotation marks and credit them, note them, whether it's with footnotes or endnotes. So at this level of exposition, it's usually okay to use just the sources that support what you wish to say or explain. So maybe you're writing a paper, um, how the Wright brothers contributed to human flight, or how, how Florence Nightingale helped doctors get over their ignorance about germs and to start washing their hands before doing surgery. So you're not necessarily going to, going to go into germ theory or the uh, you know, uh, medical school curriculum in the late 19th century. You're going to focus on Florence Nightingale and what she did to help doctors start to wash their hands. So now, okay. There, again, you find the sources that show what she was doing. Now you're going for a master's degree. And perhaps you're on the same topic or another one, but it's a deeper exploration. So you're now required generally to to have a a bibliography, to provide a bibliography of, of your sources. And there's usually some expectation that the master's student will give at least a broad overview of the subject, as well as prevent a few different points of view and give references for what they use in both presenting and supporting their thesis, which is most likely one that others already embrace. So it's not so much that they're producing new or refined knowledge, but more likely reporting existing knowledge in something of a new way, or or, or, or applying it to something in a new and creative way. Again, how beautiful. Oh, wait. Supporting their thesis. We might want to be careful there. Because, because sometimes, and I emphasize sometimes, not every time, that's everything. The student, or the author, or the podcaster, present, or the influencer in other ways, presents or most highlights just what supports their thesis, just what they want to say about the subject, or want others to know about it. And that can be a problem, a consequential knowledge problem. Because if that's the case, well, let's just say, let's hope they're not getting their degree in structural engineering and soon to be doing the stress calculations for a skyscraper or that bridge. And do note, because because they might have a narrow focus, concentrating on supporting and clearly explaining their thesis, they might not know better. They might not know the limits of their own knowledge and therefore they wouldn't know that they might not know that what they think is true might not be true. Now, since their learning or research is so selective, how could they know? Well, wait, they, they might. And we're left hoping that they are genuinely trying to share truthfully rather than sharing with some other purpose, such as, say, I don't know, reinforcing certain ideas or interests or something that's biased that's not truthful or even possibly harmful to themselves or to others. They might not know that the knee joint doesn't rotate 
when it's in extension, when your leg is straight at the knee joint, or, or how much the knee joint might rotate when moved through various degrees of flexion, like when you bend your knee. And, and, and which soft tissues are affected? Are affected it, it, in what kind of specific ways when one places some amount of rotational force through that knee joint when it is fully extended, such as in Warrior One Pose, Virabhadrasana One. Now, as a yoga teacher, they might not have ever learned anything about any of that. Remember that idea of standards, including in the yoga realm. Or they might be teaching based on what they learned in their personal practice, which might make, that is, well, if you're teaching yourself, that makes a lot of sense because you discover it within your body and it kind of works okay. Or, again, they might be teaching others based on what they learned in their personal practice or from their own teachers who may or may not have been very well informed, but they're, they're no less teaching it, often in a class when various relevant tissues aren't all that ready to offer support or forgiveness for those rotational forces to that extended knee joint. And now we come quite directly to the relationship between knowing and harming, knowledge and truth, ahimsa, not hurting, and satya, truth. Often, with the less-than-enlightened or self-realized teacher's ego in play. Same with the student. And now ignorance, so to say not necessarily such willful ignorance, is not a source of bliss, but injury to ligaments, most likely the popliteal fibular or anterior cruciate or posterior cruciate ligaments. Okay, now we have a PhD student, a doctoral student. Although still a student, and let's imagine that, by the way, just the beauty of us all being students from birth to death, really going with that quip from Aristotle that the more you know, the more you know you don't know, and finding inspiration in that to learn even more. What a beautiful project, part of the human project. And along the way, we might also be teachers. But at this point, this now doctoral student, there are indeed far greater expectations because now, finally, you are expected to contribute to new knowledge or the refinement or the elaboration of existing knowledge. This is very much akin to the influential writer, author, podcaster, or conference presenter. Their words can carry great power, great impact in the world. Raising the bar, I will suggest, on standards and integrity. So now you have at, this, at the doctoral level, you have an advisor and you and a committee uh, to guide you, indeed to supervise you, to help ensure that your work has integrity, that it contributes to better human understanding. Let's say whether you're in the medical school or divinity school or working on a doctorate in anthropology or a history of physics or whatever it is, philosophy, your work, your work will reflect upon them, upon their integrity, their knowledge. So everyone, the entire team, is usually going to try to get it right. It starts with lots of learning about the general subject, anthropology, broadly, but certainly to the level that allow you to teach college students about the topic, anthropology or political science one or 101. But it goes much further because now you're invited to look into something that's also specific, often very, very specific, and to look into it in great detail. Now, Earlier on, back in college or at that master's level, you might have gotten away with what we call cherry picking. That is, picking only the cherries 
that you really wish to, to reveal, the nice ones, what you think are the tasty ones, uh, the shiny ones, to, the, what you, only the ones that you wish to cover in your paper or thesis. Not now. Uh, first, you come up with a question, uh, an original question, an originating question, or a question about someone else's original question, and probably lots of other very tightly related specific questions, specifying questions that allow you to get more deeply into your basic question. Well, whatever your questions, your next task is to find, to learn, to present everything, everything that is the most currently relevant in the attempts to get at that topic, other contributions to it, that is. And this is really important, I think, whether you agree with them or not. So you cover the general topic and also the specific one. In granular detail, cherry-picking, not allowed. And if you do cherry-pick, if, if you decide to leave out the ideas that others have, you're going to get busted sooner or later. There's, someone will reveal that whether it was by deliberate omission or sloppy research, you picked some cherries, maybe the ones you liked that aligned with your interests, and you left the rest out. Not good. Or, or rather, not to be moralistic, but I do think this often rises to that level. This potentially pollutes part of that human project, the project of developing more accurate understanding, of adding to knowledge, to better knowing, to knowing, to yana, to being truthful, fully open and forthcoming in the pursuit of that knowledge, as in revealing it, sharing it truthfully, being true, in truth as best we can, embodying satya, being in Satya. After presenting all of that existing knowledge, all of those various points of view, you're ready to offer a guess. This is now chapter two or something like that. That is to put forth what's perhaps a better you know, new or different underlined answer or an idea. You call it a thesis or a hypothesis. It's best to make it clean and simple. For example, my idea is that my style of yoga arose from the primordial ooze when Earth was created 10,000 years ago through the fusion of Purusha, pure consciousness, and Prakriti, potential materiality, was divinely codified by the sage Patanjali a few thousand years later and perfectly reflects the true transmission of yoga to and from sage Nathamuni in the 9th century directly to my own teacher, from him to me, giving me my style of yoga, clearly the original and thus the true yoga. Now, that's a little bit of a playful statement, but let's just say that that, what I've just given you, is pretty darn close to the theses put forth in some very popular books widely circulated around the world and supportive materials for certain styles of yoga attempting to create the legitimacy of their practice through such claims. Okay, but that's not a very simple hypothesis, is it? So, but it is, again, it's pretty close to a few theses and insertions that are out there in some very popular books. A clear and a simpler thesis might be this. Okay, we propose that this practice of 26 postures, each done twice in the specified order and rooted in the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali from, from 4,000 years ago, is truest and good for all human beings. Now, that's a loose paraphrase 
for the direct source, go. I think it's page three or four, Bikram Chattery's first book, Bikram's Beginning Yoga Class. Pretty close paraphrase. I think it's Penguin Putnam Publishers around 2000 or 2001. Here's a far, an even simpler hypothesis. Okay, I think active medial rotation of the thigh, as I was discussing with that knee joint, I think active medial rotation of the thigh in warrior one pose can strain the knee ligaments in many people. True? All people? General question? Specifying question? Dive in. Okay, still relating to, say, historical sources. Thesis. I think Patanjali wrote chapters 1 through 3 of the Yoga Sutra close to 325 of the Common Era in Buddhist hybrid Sanskrit, while chapter 4 was written in pure Sanskrit, suggesting either different authorship or revision possibly in relation to political religious conflicts between Buddhist and Hindu or other interests. Now, that is a thesis that has been put forth by some folks, and one in particular who's looked deeply at that question. If you're interested, by the way, in anything I'm referring to throughout this podcast or others, uh, we generally post sources in our show notes, but always let us know if there's anything that's, ref- that's referred to here and you're curious about it, very happy to share the sources. So whatever the questions might be, the next step is to dig for information. Excavate the ruins. Be systematic. Take systematic notes. Interview the witnesses. All of them, or, or as many as you can. Look at the contemporaneous art. Read the manuscripts. Read as many versions as you can find. Indeed, appreciate that in each of the 100 or more published interpretations of Patanjali's Yoga Sutra, those 195 aphorisms, some will say 196, it's a debate over a particular set of aphorisms in chapter 3. Happy to discuss that. Um, So there are differences in these 100 or so. There are often great differences. Bring them forth. Look at them. Study them. Maybe look more deeply at the translations themselves. Discuss all of this with others, including others who have ideas or practices that are different from yours. In the book uh, Light on the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, Iyengar, BKS Iyengar, uh, huge, huge influence uh, uh, in the yoga world from the mid-20th century to the present, uh, someone to whom I bow deeply as someone who's helped me to understand aspects of practice in really important in profound ways to the Iyengar community, one that I hold in great honor and esteem. No less, Iyengar uses the term in that book, perfect, including perfect posture. Um, It's a powerfully consequential term. It it, it has become part of the body of knowledge about yoga for millions of people worldwide. But does that term perfect, or the idea of perfect posture, perfect asana, appear in the Yoga Sutra? Try finding it. Um, Iyengar is far from alone uh, and, uh, in having a, a certain kind of a way of interpreting. Uh, and others go far in their interpretations, or I would suggest misinterpretations, much farther in the direction of possibly hurting people, of harming people, the ahimsa issue. So let's say many years ago, I read Patabi Joyce's one book, Yoga Mala, which for several reasons I will not recommend. I will say that it contains many, uh, I think, quite bizarre ideas that are more aligned with fundamentalist religious ideas about human beings and human relationships uh, than anything Patanjali ever wrote. 
even as it is put forth, has been forth and supported by many others, as the perfect, perfect expression of Patanjali's Yoga Sutra, which the author then uses to assert that his specific style of yoga, Ashtanga Vinyasa, is the practice for embodying the teachings of the Yoga Sutra, a practice he and others claim to be of divine or ancient origin, this despite overwhelming evidence that the practice was designed in the 1930s with clear influence from other 20th century yoga practices, British military calisthenics, Danish gymnastics, and other sources. Now, in full disclosure on this, I practiced Ashtanga Vinyasa Yoga, this style of yoga, through the Advanced Series A, third series, uh, starting in 1994 and jumping off the Ashtanga Vinyasa train around 2005. I still dabble in it because I enjoy certain parts of the practice. And I think there are aspects of that practice that have great, great redeeming value for some yoga students. But regarding ahimsa, the very specifically prescribed and routinized practices of Ashtanga Vinyasa involve several postures, Setu Bandhasana, chief among them, that are likely to cause serious injury. That particular one to the thoracic nerve outlets in the C2 through C5 segments of the cervical spine. Imagine that you're lying down on your back and you slide your feet in a little bit like you're preparing to press your hips up into a bridge pose, but you don't slide them in quite that far. And you might prop up onto your elbows because what the next movement is going to create is a bridge, if you will, that spans from your feet to the top of your head. That is, you're going to thrust your hips up into the sky, pressing your legs as straight as you can, crossing your arms over your chest. So the full weight of your body is on your feet, way out there in front. Your body is like a plank, but it's arched to the sky a little bit. And the rest is on the top, top of your head, which well, has a neck just below it, which is now in great hyperextension with significant weight of the body bearing straight directly through it. It is disturbing that this, not just this posture, but rather this and similar work is still celebrated. Recently brought forward with new printings, new forwards by highly influential voices, still celebrating its great wisdom and truth. Truth and not harming, satya and ahimsa. We have serious practical issues here, not just issues of theory, yet issues that now underline how much our principles, our methods, come into play in real life in the here and now. It goes beyond cherry-picking. Cherry-picking has a close cousin called confirmation bias, pretty much like what that high school student was doing, basically confirming what they wanted to confirm. And that's okay for a high school student who's just beginning to learn how to write a basic report, nonfiction. They're, they're, they're trying to, to get at one, one topic. You know, what did the Wright brothers contribute to flight? They're given a few references. They're not plagiarizing. They're not trying to explain flight. They're not designing planes. But cherry picking and confirmation bias they don't belong in books, in articles, or other sources where people are looking for affer- accurate information, for insights that are, that are rooted in truth. Maybe on a path, maybe on a path to whatever it is that they want to, to, to truer knowledge, to really knowing, to practicing in ways that are well-informed, 
that are more likely to reveal inner truths, worldly truths, spiritual truths, truths that are true to oneself and just might stand the test of experience, the test of many others in their experiences. It's important for teachers, authors, and other influencers to know that they can always improve their work, their offerings. As I write new material or rewrite things that are already out there, I try to get it as right as I can. Sometimes that means hitting the delete button on things that seemed right or correct some years ago. But as you know, as we all hopefully keep learning, sometimes we learn we've been wrong. It's important to be open about that. And where we've relied upon sources, as I certainly have, that some years ago were thought to be all the most authoritative and accurate, but we've since learned that they just were not, we need to find, well, we need to correct what we put out there ourselves, and we also need to find respectful ways to tell those authors, creators, generators of those other sources, encourage them to take another look and share with them the new sources, share with them the new insights, so that, that we find to be more accurate, so that we're all sharing and getting closer well, to what is true and not, let's say, alternative facts or falsehoods. Now, where it is a blatant sati issue, it's, of course, a far more delicate matter. And, and where it might also be an ahimsa issue, a source of harm to others, we've just got to have the courage and the commitment to these core principles to take the risk of compassionately speaking truth to power. And this is where I do indeed invite frank criticism of my own work. Well, I'm trying to do my best to find my errors first, to get them right, to put it all out there, to keep breathing deeply, to move farther forward. And this, I think, must be part of our dialogue, of our conversations, our teachings. It's about being in, being with satya, with truth, with being as truthful as we can possibly be. Cherry-picking? Not being wholly truthful can be a direct source of hurting, of violating the basic principles in medicine. That is, first, do no harm. In terms of principles, it's ultimately about that, about himsa. So if the foundation of one's teachings, one's style, one's approach, one's techniques, one's methods is predicated upon a variety of mythological notions that have been asserted over a period of time, um, it's important to get at that and reveal that and do it in a way that, again, it's about truthfulness and pursuing it in a way that is reliable and also communicating about it in ways that are filled with loving kindness. The Yoga history and philosophy nerds among you might um, have read about Ahimsa not hurting in the four Vedas, Veda itself word related to vidya, meaning a certain type of knowledge, uh, and, 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 or knowing. Um, and note that the idea probably then in the Vedas, um, you know, uh, between about eight and 1,500 years uh, before the Common Era, that it did not extend to humans, to non-humans, excuse me. That is, it didn't extend to non-humans. That is, unless those elaborate horse sacrifice rituals that are prescribed in detail in the Samanya Vedas were purely metaphorical, that the related iconography just simply misinterpreted and the burned bone fragments excavated by archaeologists somehow mistaken. Okay, the science of yoga. There's a lot to explore, and I love it. And there's also the direct experience of yoga. What anyone can have right now, 
I love it even more. Somewhat free of theory, of science, even as there's a lot of science and theory embodied in our tissues, especially in the gray-white matter of our brain, but I think also throughout the, our body minds in the sense of our somatic intelligence as beings. But that's certainly part of why Patanjali tells us to work, to practice toward, well, toward the suspension of our cognitive apparatus, this is the practice of pratyahara. Uh, which current polyvagal toning theory suggests we might do with certain specific kinds of techniques. And with this, that, and in relation to this very much, another domain of neuroscience suggesting that we can get at this all in relation to the brain's, relaxing the brain's default mode network, letting it settle, which some of you might have experienced in meditation or on psychedelics or walking in the woods or being completely present with your partner. Regarding practice, practicing yoga, I think there's great value in teachers and guides who've been on the path, maybe a somewhat different path than your own, but they are there with you. I like to suggest generally with good intention, whether they're with you directly, through computer screen, through headphones, a book, or in your heart. Listen to them. Explore with them. Ask them questions. Try to be open with them and invite them to be open with you. There is a lot of insight out there. I also think there's infinite value in tuning in inside, listening to your inner teacher. I think your best teacher, even as sometimes that teacher might be repeating things that can be hurtful, that might keep you f away from the truth, especially when, we, when, when one does have confusion. The old records are playing in our heads. Keep breathing. Use all the tools. Keep practicing. We sometimes hear that the proof of the pudding, that the proof is in the pudding, but it's not just looking at it or smelling it. The proof of the pudding is in the eating, the savoring, the digestion, the integration. Ultimately, it should be a delightful, friendly experience. Even if at first or from time to time it's bitter or too sweet or too something, keep breathing, keep showing up. This is your life. As I said at the outset of this episode, some of my podcasts are deliberately provocative, by which I mean intended to provoke deeper thinking and conversation, which I intend in a kind way, with an abiding current of loving kindness and respect. I wish to provoke deeper understanding, more open sharing, clearer feeling, greater awakening to being in this life in the most conscious and magnificent ways, ways I'm confident will make all of us better, more in our integrity, better for each other, for one another. This as we live in a world of societies, of communities, and families, and friends, mostly not in isolated caves in the mountains, but right here and now. We are interconnected, we are mutually dependent, and hopefully we can have these qualities in healthier and more just and more beautiful ways. Thank you for listening. Please see the show notes for links and resources from today's show, as well as links to our sponsors of this episode. If you're enjoying or learning from the Yoga Room podcast, please tell your friends and others who might be interested. And you can also subscribe to the show on your favorite listening platform so you never miss anything. If you're listening on Spotify or Apple, please rate and review the show to support us in sharing healthy practices and engaging ideas from around the world. 
And again, thank you for joining us today.